This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 110 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am talking to Sebastian de Castel all about creating character voice. Now, I have to say, this is... Well, I don't want to, I don't want to say I have favorites, but I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Sebastian. Um, I love his mind. I love his characters. I loved his book. And it is a conversation that I hope you will take as much as I did from. But first to last week's question, which was what type of launch appeals to you most? Ian Worrell said, one that would make me a millionaire or at least a high thousandaire. Also, I loved that. I loved thousandaire. I don't think I have ever heard thousandaire before. So uh, that is a new phrase uh, to me. Um, But yes, I really enjoyed that. Um, Okay, so... um, Shane Miller on Instagram, uh, SW Miller author, said, uh, Sasha Black author, thanks to a chat with you and Wilcox author, I realised rapid release won't work for me. Uh, Leah Copeland Wright says, already listened, I loved this one. Uh, Edwin Downward said, I soft launched my first two books and got the kind of response you'd expect. I'm hoping to boil the kind of advice your guest gave into something stronger when book three is finally ready for release into the wild. Rapid release isn't an option, and as a wide publisher, the KU factor is a non-issue. So what so what that'll eventually look like is still anyone's guest. A guess, sorry. So thank you to um, everybody who commented. Please do comment each week. I love to uh, see what you say and see what your thoughts are on the episode. Um, yeah, and uh, as did I mention this week's question? I'm not sure if I did. Well, this week's question is, what characters have you read with really strong voices? I know it's always bloody dangerous to ask for book recommendations, but uh, that's what we're doing this week. So tell me, what characters have you read with really strong voices? Okay, so the book recommendation for the week this week is actually our guest's book, Way of the Argosy by Sebastian de Castel. Now, I read this and I've also got Fall of the Argosy to read and I loved the first book so much that I went straight out and I brought Spellslinger. Now, Way of the Argosy and Fall of the Argosy are although I think they are like books seven and eight or eight and nine, they are actually prequels. Um... Uh, but so, and Spellslinger is book one, um, uh, and these two prequels are from a, a different character's point of view. So I'm led to believe I haven't read Spellslinger yet, so I don't know. Um, but they are fantastic. I absolutely loved Way of the Argosy, um, or Argosy, I think is actually how you pronounce it pronounces it um but it is fantastic it has such strong character voices i loved the world building um i just loved the story and i completely fell in love uh with with the world building the characters and and everything so yeah i really do recommend that you go and read this i think you can read uh way of the argosy or fall of the argosy although way of the argosy is technically the first book as it's the furthest back in time and then spellslinger is the sort of um 
main series although it's from a different character's perspective um so yeah i highly recommend you go and check it out a small personal update this week um because i have only really just got back from uh, my family trip to holland uh, the netherlands where i visited my dad for a few days it was lovely to catch up um and i am in the midst of trying to um, port across my old imac to my new mini mac um and it's just a bit chaos and carnage in here and I'm also trying to finish the masterclass for Sunday's uh, masterclass uh, on villains, which um, if you're listening in real time, then it will be all over. However, I will be uploading it to my course portal. So if you did miss out and you would like to catch up on the course, then you can by visiting sashablack.thinkific.com and you'll be able to find it there. I don't know whether it will be live when this goes live on Wednesday, but my aim will be to get it up as soon as humanly possible. Um, and of course, there'll be a sort of takeaway sheet, there'll be um, transcriptions, there'll be the, the video, the Q&A, all of that good stuff and the slides and, and everything there, audio and video formats. Um, in terms of next week, I'm still trying to get my head around having just got back off holiday. You know what it's like when you've been away for a while and your brain isn't quite working. Um, I am, how can I put this without giving all of the things away? I'm making lots of decisions in the background. Um, I am thinking about setting up a secret pen name, which will remain secret. Um, I am uh, looking at the next books that I'm going to write next week. I should be editing mostly um, and obviously working on getting up the masterclass and uh, doing a bit of freelance um, and hopefully maybe getting some fresh words for Nano as well. I won't be doing a, you know, 50,000 word Nano because I'm focusing on editing, um, but I will try to get some words down in November. So yeah, I think I'm just going to leave it there this week because I, I mean, I literally got back last night. So I, my ass is still firmly shoved up my, no, I mean, my head is firmly shoved up my ass. Uh, I have no idea what time it is, what's going on or what I'm supposed to be doing other than getting this uh, podcast done. So yes, I will come back to you next week with a better update. Rebel of the week this week is Lena Johnson. Lena says, um, I used to work for this privately owned molecular laboratory that was run by crazy people. Um, so the, the, she, we've got a couple of stories from Lena. So one today and one uh, for a future episode. Thank you so much for sending two, actually. I really appreciate it. Um, Okay, so uh, Lena says, business was picking up at work and we were getting behind on our advertised turnaround time. The boss called in from out of state and said we had to work mandatory overtime <gasps> until we could get that time down. What the fuck? I called bullshit uh, because I'm the one in the lab every day and I knew more hours wouldn't change anything. Overtime pay is great, but why work extra hours just to accomplish nothing and still get yelled at by the boss. I set out to prove that working overtime would not help by calculating instrument times. How many samples a lab tech could process in a day? And concluded proudly that even with everyone working an extra two hours a day, the limiting factor was the number of instruments and not hours worked. I presented my case and the boss couldn't help but allow us to go back to regular hours. The best thing about this that still makes me laugh to this day is that they made me... <laughs> oh my god! I'm sorry! I forward read the last line! The best bit about this is that they made me employee of the month for it! 
That is hilarious. <laughs> the irony of this rebel story is just delicious. Thank you so much for sending this in. <laughs> that has tickled me pink. Um, if you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small or something in between. And so I know I say this a lot, but we are sort of consistently at a low level of rebellions at the moment. Um, we used to have a lot more stock and it made me much more comfortable. Um, so I would really, really appreciate it if you do have a story and perhaps you haven't sent one in yet, if you would, because this is my favourite section. Um, well, other than all of the sections, but you know what I mean. I do love a cheeky rebellion. Um, you can email your rebel story to rebel author podcast podcast at gmail.com or you can instagram me at sasha black author one new patron this week welcome and a gigantic thank you to genevieve scholl um, and of course a big thank you to all of my existing patrons if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as random bonus content joining me for poison and proses getting discounts on things like um the masterclass this weekend then you can from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black okay this episode is sponsored by the ever-amazing Pro Writing Aid. If you would like to get a rebel 20% discount on Pro Writing Aid software, then you can by using the link to visit their special rebel promotion page uh, in the show notes. Today we're going to hear from C.M. Newell. She is a young adult fantasy author and also a writing coach. You can find out more about Cassie on her um, author page, sassywritingcoach.com or on her fiction page, authorcmnewell.com. So let's hear from Sassy Cassie all about why she loves Pro Writing Aid. I'm one of those lifetime licensed Pro Writing Aid individuals. I love it so much. It's a part of my integrated editing for all of my manuscripts, for all of the books I have published and am working on now. The reason why I love it so much is I love Scrivener and I love the desktop plugin with regards to Scrivener. The reports are fantastic. It allows me to know where to focus on. And one of the key features that I really enjoy is setting it up with my genre in mind and comparing me to another author who writes in my genre. You don't get those kind of insights with a lot of editing tools. And this allows me to see how I'm faring against the market. I couldn't replace that. That is indispensable. And I love it. So if anyone ever asks me what I use in terms of editing, in terms of my process, it's Pro Writing Aid. Okay, that is it for the intro. I told you it would be a shorter one this week. Back to normal length next week. Um, thank you to Cassie for the wonderful words about Pro Writing Aid. If you would, don't forget, if you would like your discount, you can get your 20% Rebel discount by using the link in the show notes. All right, enough waffling. Let's talk to Sebastian all about character voice. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Sebastian de Castell. Sebastian's acclaimed swashbuckling fantasy series, The Great Coats, was shortlisted for both the Good Goodreads Choice Award for Best Fantasy and the Gemmel Morningstar Award. 
His YA fantasy series, Spellslinger, is published in more than a dozen languages. He spends his time writing, traveling, and going on strange adventures. Now, before we begin and I dive in, if there's something interesting about a bio, I always like to ask, throw a random question in. So um, tell me about these strange adventures. I think I just, because I was a bit of a timid kid, um, in a lot of ways, actually, I'm kind of a timid adult, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, I found that, uh, as I grew up, I just constantly felt this need to, maybe in a sense, it's to do the, some of the things that you sort of, you know, I was too nervous to do, you know, as a kid. And so there's a lot of very strange things like, and, and it's often very small, um, It'll be something like I was in Mont Saint-Michel for a couple of days this summer. For those who've who've never been there or seen it, Mont Saint-Michel is in France. It's a, it's a, it's an old, old 13th or 14th century, I think 13th century monastery uh, that's connected by a causeway. So when the tide comes in, the the water's gone. Um, And I had never seen it before. And, um, and it's this tiny place. And when you go there, in the day, it is absolutely packed with tourists. There's only one sort of main street and it's about 400 meters long and it takes you about a half an hour to get there. It's, it's the epitome of the, I wanted to go see Venice and all I saw were tourists and taking photos in Venice kind of place. And I was staying there recently um, and I managed to find a hotel room on the island itself. And uh, I was jet lagged because I'm Canadian. So it's quite a, a jaunt from Canada to, to France. And uh, at 3.30 in the morning, I was having trouble sleeping. And I thought, you know, why don't I just, you know, why don't I just go out and see the, the town in the middle of the night? And I, and I honestly, I swear, I didn't even know if it was like legal to do so because it's such a strange little place. Um, and I thought, you know, am I going to get arrested or what's going to happen? And I finally sort of managed to do that thing that, you know, as I think sometimes as an adult, we, we have to we teach ourselves to, to overcome our sort of fears or concerns. And I, and I went walking out on the streets of Mont Saint-Michel in, in the middle of the night. And it was, it was incredible. It was absolutely the closest experience I've ever had to time travel. Like, because I could walk down those streets. And even though there were still, like, there were still stores that had electric lights in them in a couple of places. There's lots of touristy places. But when you're just walking on the streets, all you could see was all this 14th century type, you know, uh, streets and, and architecture. And I walked all the way up to the cemeteries and the, and, and up to the, the abbey, uh, the, the monastery itself. And there's like just absolutely no one except for cats because all the cats in the island hide until the middle of the night when they come out. And so it's, it's those kind of things that I'm always looking for because that's kind of what informs uh, that sense of wonder that goes into writing. I love that. And I also love strange adventures. And I, my poor wife gets dragged all over the place um, to, to all of these unusual things. So I, uh, for a while, I was taking a lot of tours of underground, uh, abandoned uh, underground stations in the UK. So all of these like derelict tube stations and my poor wife's like, what are we doing? And I'm like, but it's so interesting. And she's like, mm-hmm. And then like uh, cemeteries, very famous cemeteries. And, and I, I have a, um, a habit of climbing into derelict buildings that, you know, we shouldn't always climb into. But uh, yeah, it's all the photos and like the 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 visual stimulus that I that I really appreciate. So I completely understand that. I am um, 
I went to Dubrovnik uh, a little while ago and we went to the um, the old city where they did a lot of the Game of Thrones stuff. But we we sort of hang out quite late at night waiting for most of the tourists to go. We had sort of had dinner and drinks and stuff. And it was so, so much better to see it where it was almost um, empty. I mean, it wasn't three o'clock in the morning, so it wasn't completely dead. But um, yeah, I totally understand that sense of wonder. Um, OK, adventures aside, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you and, and sort of how you got to where you are today as a writer? What was your journey? Sure. Um, it, in some ways, my actual journey as an author is, is just about the most boring thing possible because it's exactly how people used to assume it worked. You know, I, I, in a sense, I, I you know, I wrote a book, uh, I, I looked for an agent, I found an agent, they got me a four book deal. And then after that came an eight book deal, and then another four book deal. And I just signed a, my, I don't know what it was, a book from a deal for my 17th novel. Um, and, and so in that sense, it's really boring. I think the, the part that's less boring or, or the part that's more meaningful to me is that when I was about nine years old, my mother um, kind of gave me, I think in some ways the best gift any parent can give their kid, which, uh, which was she, she brought me into, uh, into the living room and um, my father had passed away recently. And she said, said, you know, your father's dead now and his, his pension's not really cutting it. And I need a, you know, I, so we're going to probably need more money. So I, I need to find some really easy way to make money. Uh, and, and the simplest obviously is just to write a book and then sell it and then we'll have a bunch of money and then we'll be fine. And, and she said, and because, you know, and, and obviously the easiest thing in the world to do is, is write romance novels, even though they're all crap. So I'm going to write a couple of those. And my mother was a, a very uh, World War II era English woman um, whose notion of romance was that above all things, it should be sensible. Um, so you can imagine what those manuscripts look like. And of course, no publisher in their right mind uh, would buy them. Um, and, and so in a sense, you would think that that would sort of be proof of a kind of hubris, but uh, hubris, it turns out, it is uh, a very powerful tool for writers. Um, that we kind of need a certain amount of hubris because, because the entire world is constantly saying, everybody kind of knows how to write, but clearly not everyone should be writing novels. So why you? And for some reason, even though my mother wasn't successful at it, that kind of stuck with me. And so I, I didn't suffer through that uh, as much of that sort of self-doubt. In fact, it's funny because now that I've been, I've been really fortunate in my career. My 12th novel just came out. I've been published in, I think, 15 languages. I've been making this great living doing this. I've gotten to go on book tours. Um, and I think I have more self-doubt now than I did before I published my first book. So, um, so how I got here was that my mother had a very, very skewed notion of how the publishing business worked. I think that is fantastic. Never have I heard that kind of a story. I think that is wonderful. Um, and 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 yeah, I bet your mum is super proud as well. Like, I just think that is wonderful. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about uh, some of your books and some of your characters. And I wanted to talk about uh, one character in particular who completely stole my heart. Um, and, and that's Therius. Um, and she stole her name even. So I think that was quite wonderful as well. Um, and and what I want to focus on is voice because Farius has this incredibly unique voice and you hear it the minute you you start reading um so I wanted to ask you how do you start creating your character voices 
Well, it's interesting because voice, you're absolutely right, it is such a crucial component um, of, of novels. And I think far more so today than at any time I'm aware of. When, when I first sold uh, Trader's Blade, which was my first novel, I asked both my editor at, um, at Quirkus in, in the UK, who had sort of bought world rights, and my editor at Penguin, because uh, Penguin had bought the Canadian rights. I'd sort of asked them what on first meeting, well, why did you, what was, why'd you bother buying this book? You know, because they both said they'd, they'd actually bought the book before they'd finished the manuscript, reading them. And I was like, why in the world would you do that? And they and they both said, oh, because as soon as we got the voice. And and I realized that, especially for traditional publishers, and this isn't of interest to, to everyone necessarily, because of course self-publishing is is uh, is just as good an avenue. Um, but but for traditional publishers, because they're constantly inundated with manuscripts in any given genre, what's the thing that leaps out to them right away? It's not going to be character because you've seen every type of character on the planet. It's not going to be plot because or premise because we see all that. And because it takes a long time to get towards a character, but voice comes through almost right away. Um, so, uh, and, and so in terms of the question, sort of how do I approach it? it the funny thing is, even though I, I have that sense of how crucial it is, voice is probably the hardest thing to kind of, you know, turn into a, a particular set of pieces or terms or concepts. Um, but typically, I think the best thing to think of is something that um, I, I always, that always comes up for me. So Philip Pullman, who wrote uh, the the wonderful uh, Northern Lights, uh, the, his Dark Materials books. Um, he, I, I remember him once saying something about the way that people wrote novels, and he said, and he said one of the things he struggles with in, in terms of how people approach their novels is. Um, it's very unclear when, when you're writing a certain story, who's actually telling the story mm. um, and, and who's it going to. And that's my thing a lot of the time is, or, and where I think voice comes through is if you're asking yourself, not, not just the standard POV question, who's telling this story, but the question, who are they telling the story to? And Aaron Sorkin, the, the great American uh, screenwriter uh, and television writer who, who wrote The West Wing and, and, and lots of things like that, um, he, he sometimes says of characters that he, he writes them as if they are making their case to God on why they should get into heaven. And so that it's one that's, and that is for me a bit almost sort of mind blowing. Like it changes how you think of telling a story of why is that character doing this? What, what are they gaining from telling the story? We always tend to think of a novel as the characters just were in the character's head, right? And we're, but we're not really, the character is telling us stuff. They're saying like, I ran into the room and as soon as I saw this guy, I knew X, Y, and Z. Okay, but why is he telling us or she telling us those things instead mm. of like, I ran into the room and it had the most delightful taupe wallpaper, you know? it's the characters focusing on, on, on things. And that's because the character wants us to believe something. And in the case of and way of the Argosi, which is, you know, where we learn about Farius as a, as a young woman, what was interesting for me is I had this very powerful sense as I was writing it. She is absolutely trying to convince us of stuff all the time. And that's where that sort of voice is coming out. Right. Um, even right in the very opening scene, she's describing this sort of horrible set of events and she's describing it as if everybody else is kind of stupid because they're all wasting their time trying to fight back and they should know better. These are Jantep mages they're fighting. They're going to die. We're all going to die. You know, um, everything's sort of pointless. Um, and, it, and so all the way through the novel, I kept finding I was getting this, this sense of, of her sort of telling the story to somebody very specific. And I swear to you, it wasn't until I wrote the last chapter, the epilogue of the book, 
that I realized who she was telling the story to. Um, and then for me, it was like, it was this wonderful epiphany. I'm sure for readers, it's like, yeah, I guess that sort of makes sense. That's fine. But for me, it was like, oh my God, this is so perfect. I, you know, I'm, I'm so happy with it. Um, and so even though I, I, I didn't know that until I hit the end, I knew that I wanted her to be trying to kind of convince us something that isn't necessarily always true. And, and, and that was the case in, in the Great Coats books as well. They're narrated by a, a, a very different kind of character. Falcio Valmond is a, you know, a traveling uh, sword fighting judge. Um, but he's always kind of trying to convince us of something too. And, and that's where, that's for me, that's where I sort of find a character's voice. Oh, there is so much I could unpick. And I'm almost cross that I've got all of these questions I need to ask you. Um, wow, wow, where do I even start with that? I think that's very true about voice. I don't think, um, uh, you know, I, I am, although I'm like mostly, I'm sort of edging towards hybrid now, but I'm mostly self-published. I, I think there are um, some trad books that are very voicey, but also some self-published books that are very voicey and some trad books that aren't. But I do, what I completely agree with is that when you find that book that is super voicey, it is like you you open it and it's just pour like gold poured onto the page and and those are the books that never really leave me um and what I loved um most about what you were saying is that we're, we're always told to 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 have in mind who we are telling the story to like you said and you know you pick a reader maybe it's one of your fans or maybe it's maybe you write to your younger self or whoever it is but never have I ever heard it described who is that character telling the story to or who is the narrator telling the story to and that like that was like a mind boggle blown moment for me um and and it sort of reminds me of have you ever seen the Netflix show you I haven't I've heard oh. about it, but I haven't gotten to see it. Yet. So that is a masterclass in in what you're saying. It's a really good example. So um, I will try not to spoiler, um, but essentially the um, oh god, is this a spoiler? I can't really remember. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you anyway, just because it's so fantastic, and it literally says exactly what you're saying. Um, the the main character narrates to you you being another character in the story and that's who they are mm. talking to the whole time and it's just fabulous so you, you can you either read the book or watch the tv show because oh mm -hmm. my goodness me it is like that is exactly what you're saying and i think that is fantastic so yeah if anyone listening um hasn't sort of uh, come across you yet then then please do because it, it is a, a really good example of this as well Okay, so one of the things I loved about your writing is that you employ lots of narrative tricks and tools, like your character, like Ferris being really self-aware or like she actually almost breaks the fourth wall as well, like almost, but not quite. Um, and she uses lots of asides and tangents and things. And I think that really helps to hone her voice. So I wondered if you could sort of talk about that, how you know when to deploy those tricks and what tricks you, like how you know which ones to choose. Yeah, just that kind of stuff, like the more prose level. Yeah, I think I think it's less a case of sort of making very conscious decisions at the time of which sort of tactic or technique to employ and more a sense of trying to broaden the range of tactics and techniques that you're comfortable with so that you can employ them when you need to. Um, for me, it's always coming down to pacing uh, in the sense that, you know, when it comes time to employ these tactics in the sense that I will feel like, okay, I need to not skip into this moment. 
So a really, a really classic example with me and, and readers can find it all the time. I do this all the time. Is that when Falcio is narrating uh, in the Great Coats books, um, and he's a very swashbuckly character, he will he will frequently go as a sword fight's about to begin. He frequently is telling the story, assuming you don't know tons about sword fighting. Um, and so he'll just go, now, the thing about people who use flails is they're always this, right? And so what that allows me to do is not just kind of ooze into the fight scene, but to go, but it's almost like, uh, and it's a really easy t- t- technique to employ um, that sort of breaking the fourth wall. Because what it allows you to do is it allows you to have the character tell the reader in effect, hey, this thing that's gonna, about to happen, it's going to be really cool. It's going to be really interesting. So watch for this, you know, it's almost, and you can do it with anything. You can do it with a romantic scene. You can imagine, um, you know, you can imagine our character, uh, uh, Judith, or, or uh, I'm just making one up. I hope nobody's name in particular. Um, uh, Judith is, is walking up to the house and she sort of says, so I, you know, I, you know, with, with heavy heart and just, you know, total anticipation, you know, I walked up to the, to the door um, to, uh, where, to, of my house and I knew that, you know, my husband was home. And so I opened the door and then, and then she goes, now, I don't know how many of you have gotten into a really big married fight, but there are levels of how ugly it can get. And let me tell you, level one ugly is you say something snarky and then you smile and kind of walk away. And level two is where you say the thing that you know is going to set off their buttons, but you also know that they're probably going to shrug it off. And level three is where you dig up your husband's family, you know, or something like that, right? I'm just, you know, we're just sort of riffing on this, right? Uh, So that by the time you're then playing that scene, the reader is like, okay, which level is this fight going to be, right? And so that's what I find is it, is it for me, a lot of those tricks and, 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 and techniques, they're less tactical than, I guess, in a sense, for me, it's sort of more desperation. It's like, oh my God, how am I going to write this? It's almost like I, I'm, I'm terrified to write this fight scene, this, ar- this argument. Um, bec- and so I, I need to give myself a little more time. And so what I kind of do is I almost assume that maybe for the reader and the character, that's true, or certainly for the character. So I let the character kind of delay the moment. You can do that without that, by the way, you can do that by having the character stand there and, and the reader knows that she's about to go and confront her husband about saying there's going to be this huge argument or she's going to admit to something. And so you just have her standing outside the door of the house and just fixing the flower pots. You know, like she walks right up the door, puts her hand on the door and then goes, uh, and then I noticed the flower pots were out of order. So I kind of adjusted this and I did that. And I, you know, we have all of these sort of ways. So for me, it's often about going, what's, what's a technique that's going to allow me to control the pace of the story so that I can magnify the things I want to magnify. Well, I think it's fucking brilliant. And uh, I learned loads just from like deconstructing what you were doing. So yeah, thanks for doing that amazing, amazing stuff in, in line. Um, okay, now I didn't ask you how to pronounce this before uh, we we started recording. So I'm going to say it right. But Ferrius and Durrells, I hope I've said that right, personalities. Girl, yeah. Thank God. Um, are, are both reflected in their voices. She's sort of this confused and jumpy character who who reacts quite impulsively to things. And he is like mega chill, like complete hippie, super chill, philosophical. I just loved him. Um, and, and yet he also has this wonderful accent as well. So how did you like create that symbiosis between their personality and then their voice like at the sentence level? 
So I think for me, when, when I'm writing, I, I, I tend to write in a very specific way, which is that in a sense, there's only one real character. And the real character is, is whoever the main character is. So in this case, Farius is, is the character and everything else that exists, the, the buildings, the landscape, the events, the language people use and other characters especially, only come into being to be as annoying as humanly possible to that character. Um, you know, or to create the most conflict, right? So, so, um, so in the case of Farius, you know, look at the life she's been leading up to that point. You know, she's been hunted, she's been, she's been tormented, she's got all these enemies, she's got all this righteous outrage at the world. And so the most challenging character to meet at that point is not necessarily the character that goes, ah, you little girl, I'll kill you, or I'll, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's not necessarily the meanest character. It's the character that goes, you know, ah, you know, the world is great. Isn't everybody wonderful? Like, I just, look at this drought. It's so gorgeous. You know, like, does that kind of like, no, you can't look at the world that way. And so that's how someone like Dural will come about, that what makes, for me, when I'm, when I'm writing those characters, what makes it kind of fun, is, is specifically the way that he speaks exactly the opposite of the way she wants and expects people to speak. And so often the way that you find, uh, sort of finding a character's voice is by just allowing that character to be the exact opposite of your character in that moment. And of course, every character, all of us as human beings, we're vastly different in every situation. But in that particular situation where they first meet, she's been alone for a long time. Things have been horrible. She sees the world as entirely uh, oppressive and dangerous. She's just been caught, you know, stealing from, from him. And then he comes in and he just starts acting like he, she tells a lie and he intentionally, he both shows her that he knows that she's lying and then insists on playing along with her lie. And so for me, that's kind of where the voice will come out. Those, those distinctive pieces, right. From, from that contrast between what the main character expects people to be like and then allowing someone to completely surprise them. So um, I feel like a complete uh, plonker because one, one of my favourite tools is juxtaposition. Like a, a novel essentially is a juxtaposition because the character starts one way and ends the opposite, you know, essentially. And, and I love juxtapositions at the sentence level. I love juxtapositions in description. And never have I ever thought about doing it comparing two characters' voices, like... Love it. So uh, thanks for that. Also, epiphany, which I'm going to go and stand in the corner and think about what I've done. Um, okay. But, but, but let me just say, you, you know that in all likelihood, you do that. We all do all of these things, right? We do them naturally. One of the, one of the kind of one of the odd things about craft, we, you know, there, you know, there's that famous old saying, which I'm, I'm going to butcher here, but it's like, Saying the effect of talking about architecture is like dancing about love or something or, you know, talk, no, talking about love is like dancing about architecture. And who is going to book it? Right. In, in other words, it's, it doesn't, you know, how could you possibly, you know, dance about architecture? Well, how can you talk about love? And writing in some ways is the same. It's this weird juxtaposition where, you know, I, I love the fact that you focus heavily in on prose mm. because prose is the only thing we actually do right? We generate words, we make sentences. And, and I find all across the spectrum of writing lately, you know, in the years since I've been doing this, there's a sense of like, 
of like, no, 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 you know, don't worry about quote fancy prose in air quotes, you know, don't, don't worry about that stuff. You know, it's about story. It's just about story and characters. And like, there's no character without the prose. The character literally is the prose. Prose isn't some varnish you put on the house after it's finished. You are so, literally speaking to my heart. Like I, I, and this is the thing that I get really frustrated about because um, I, I adore prose and I love that you picked up on that. Um, at, but it's not, I don't preach that you need to have written this flowery, purple, beautiful, whateverness. Um, you can do so much with prose, like, you know, an abstract painting is just as beautiful as a surrealist painting. Um, and, and this is what we can do with prose, which is why I get so nerdy and excited about it. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and prose can be, and dead simple prose sometimes is, is like the essence. I was, I was talking to a fellow yesterday who's, who uh, doesn't identify himself as a writer. He, he works in a whole other space. And I'm about to reveal the first line of what I hope will be his novel one day. But, uh, but he, we were just talking about something else completely. And he, and he said, and he said, the thing I always tell people is coffee is a liar. And, <gasps> and then he kind of had, and I said, coffee is a liar is the opening to a great book, right? Four words, dead simple. But coffee and liar, as you just rightly said about juxtaposition, mm-hmm. right? Those are those are things. It's not like saying good is is evil. Like coffee is not something we associate with deception. Coffee is a liar. You can go right into a million things from there, mm-hmm. and and that's when I pick up a book for the first time. That's often what I'm looking for. Page one. Am I am I grabbed by the first sentence? I am going to confess that I collect first sentences. <laughs> I collect first sentences of novels um, and because I'm a geek and a loser, but I, I because that, so much in a first sentence, if you have a cracking first sentence, you, you, you can literally grab and pull a reader through the entire novel just because you had a, a banging first sentence. Um, so yeah, I, I love that. And I love that first line. And I really hope whoever that, that person is, they do write that because that is a know- fantastic first line. And what's funny is I have a book, the fourth Spellslinger book, uh, Soulbinder. The opening line is "The desert is a liar," and yeah, I used to love, I love that it. one. Yeah, but but it's actually not as good as "Coffee is a Liar." There's a there's a greater juxtaposition, right? It's very easy to go when someone says "The desert is a liar" to go, "Okay, how is the liar?" And you can kind of imagine ways, and and that and and any and that sort of softens it. When you hear "Coffee is a liar," you've got nothing, right? You and and so you're like, "Okay, I've got to know what the next sentence is," and that is the absolute essence of what we do right our our entire job is to try to make people go what's the next sentence absolutely I completely agree um there was something else I was going to say but um I'm seen also it's gone never mind hopefully it'll come back to me <laughs> um okay so Doral has a really distinctive voice as I mentioned earlier and mm. has a kind of an accent as well so and particularly in well obviously in the in the dialogue so um I wondered what advice you could give to an author wanting to you know really hone accent because I think we can all do accent in dialogue for a short mm. amount of time but when you then have to expand it across an entire novel it gets exhausting to write so and and people slip and they fall and then it and they all the characters end up having mono mouth sounding all the same um so yeah what, what advice do you have sure so so you kind of raised two different pieces there and they're both really interesting and i'm not an expert on either of them but i'll but i'll, I'll do my best um and the one is we sort of talk about accent um specifically in in sort of 
how do you create a, a, a musicality to the a different musicality of the way each character speaks? Um, and the second part is how do we make sure the characters are distinct um, when they're speaking? And they can sound like the same thing, but they're really not. And the more you lean on the first to try to achieve the second, the more trouble you get into. The more you try to use accent as a mechanism of distinguishing which character is speaking or making a character recognizable, the more you'll get into trouble. Because of course, there's very few things we that the modern reader will sort of tolerate well. You know, so for example, I mean, I do this all the time. I have the character, you know, I, they, they meet a character in a small village and they're like, what do ye want thou, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah rank and fowlers and you know and and like that's fine when it's like the tavern master who you know you meet for two seconds and they're gone but as soon as as, as you get to like chapter 14 you're like ah oh, shit i just made that tavern master a major character in the story and i'm stuck with his goddamn yees all the way through the book so um i will sometimes allow a stray ye in into the story and then i will and then i'll pretty much eliminate it right away um, for, uh, and, and people will virtually never notice. The only exception, and I wrestle with this all the time, is the N apostrophe instead of like I N apostrophe instead of I N G, right? Talking versus talking, um, because talking and walking and running and them varmints, uh, you know, are things that people can actually endure uh, quite comfortably. And when it's not there, we start to sort of lose it. So, um, but the short advice on accent for me is. Think rhythm instead of melody. So melody for me with accents is those very particular sort of words and vowel sounds, right? Like trying to like go ye and this and, and like that, that kind of thou and all that kind of stuff. That's all sort of for me, like the melody, that's the notes. But the rhythm of speech is, is in many ways a more indicative um, in, in, a, in the written word, more indicative of accent. So I'm going to use a bit of a stereotypical example here. And so I apologize to everyone who's Irish. Um, <laughs> but often when we think of Irish people thinking, we sort of put, we sort of, we put on this kind of um, Keebler elf sort of weird accent, you know, where they, they're just like, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, that, these kind of sounds. Yeah. And and the, the, the vowel sounds are not where it's happening. That's not where the real sort of um, accent's happening. It is in the rhythms. Mm. And, and so I'll have friends who, who are from Ireland who've lived, let's say, in Canada for a very long time, and they don't set, quote, quote, unquote, sound Irish in that sense, but their rhythms come back. And so with Durrell, I'm always looking for that rhythm. Durrell's always trying to get to the punchline. Right. Like Durrell's, you know, he's always like trying to get to the thing that puts the big period and everybody stops and then thinks about what he just said. And so it's that that's where I'll sort of create him um, in terms of his voice. And now that's a very hard thing to do, like, or at least it's hard for me. I have to really think about it and I don't always get there. What's far easier in terms of giving characters a distinctive voice across a novel is Remembering that what defines people is not how, not so much how they say things, but actually what things they choose to say. And so certain characters, I always ask myself, what are the things that they focus on? Like various will try and focus on the sort of the immediate, like we're in trouble. We need to figure out how to get past these or kill this person or something else. And Durrell will always want to talk about like how people should go through life. 
Yeah. But she also loves a good aside, which I loved. Yeah. I love that yeah. she loves a good aside, but she always cuts herself off, which I loved even more. So she tells half an aside, which is just fantastic. Um, yeah, I loved it. I love this. I love this chat. I cannot tell you how excited I am to share this uh, with, with listeners. I hope everybody else likes it as much as me. Um, OK, so you sort of um, uh, just alluded to there uh, a great segue for my next question, which is the philosophy behind the Argosy. Um, like where does that where did that come from or like I don't want to say like what was the inspiration but like where are the nuggets that you're drawing from the ingredients that that help to create their culture and, and that sort of philosophy well um yeah I and I and I I, I adore how skillful you've evaded the the <laughs> how do you where do you get your ideas from <laughs> for phrasing of a question um it's almost which, like uh, I'm a writer <laughs> I know it's 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 almost like you've had four hundred people ask you that question, um, and um, but you know the funny thing is it is a perfectly reasonable question when you think about it because we do all get our ideas from different places. Um, but in the case of this, so uh, so I'm and I and I apologize. I'm intentionally pulling us back to that question. So I've just done the thing like every writer swears they'll never do, which is <laughs> try to which is answer without being asked where do you get your ideas. Um, but I sometimes think that the the place that I often get my motivation to come up with a character or a type of character or an order or a plot or whatever is in the gap between what I see in the world and what I feel inside me. And so I see things in the world and I go, that's not how it works. It sure looks like that's how it works, but it doesn't feel like that's how it ought to work. So, so in that gap, I sort of find like the, the motivation for something. And so I'll give a really simple example and then, and then, and then I'll get to the, the Argosy. Um, so in Spellslinger, when I first read Harry Potter, which is a fantastic series of, of books, uh, and, and I apologize to anyone who's, you know, who, who, for whom those books are problematic now because of J.K. Rowling's uh, positions on things, but, but as books, a lot of people, you know, me included, sort of thought these are really great, but they don't in any way reflect my experience of the world, right? Harry, at sort of 10 years old, thinks that he's mediocre, thinks that he's unimportant, thinks people don't love him. And then it turns out that he's actually incredibly powerful. He has a grand destiny. His parents actually loved him more than any other parents on the planet. And by the way, incidentally, he's also super rich. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my no experience- one ever. <laughs> Yeah. My experience was not that. My high school experience was standing in, in front of the lockers before first bell one day, watching all my fellow students walking in through the, the hall and thinking, wow, I am not the smartest person in this school. I'm not the strongest. I'm not the most athletic. I'm certainly not the best looking. I don't even have the nicest personality of the people. And like, I am completely unspecial. And so when I was writing Spellslinger, I was like, well, I don't want to write about the I, I, I don't want to write about the kid who's born with the destiny. I want to write about the kid who's part of this magical society, whose parents are great mages, whose younger sister is like the most promising mage uh, of their generation, and who he himself is like the weakest and discovering that his powers such as they are are going away are disappearing. I want to see what that person does. And so the Argosi came about from a very similar um, position, which was, I was, I, I think I had, whenever I watch like Star Trek movies, like everybody loves the Jedi, right? And I love the Jedi when I watch it. And then I think about the Jedi and I hate them. <laughs> and I, and I hate them because number one, it's all about who's born with the force. And I don't know a lot about the force, except that I know that I wasn't born with it. So that excludes me. 
Um, and then, and then also this thing about how it's so important that they not have all the things I associate with humanity, right? That they, they have to be incredibly disciplined and remove their emotions and not fall in love and all this. And I'm like, those are the only good things about being a human being. And so when I was writing the Argosi, who are this order of wandering kind of cowboy philosophers, so to speak, you know, and gamblers living in this world that's surrounded by danger and magic. I wanted to go, no, I want them to be built around. How would you with just human abilities fight, you know, or survive in a world where there are mages and, and wizards and everything else that could kill you. And so I wanted it to be about taking all the things that make us human and going, how far can we extend those? And so the, the seven Argosi talents, you know, include things like eloquence, because I adore eloquence, right? Like, you know, and I have seen this happen. I have seen someone say, someone be of one mind on something and be aggressive and closed off. And I've seen someone who listens to the rhythms of their voice, speaks back to them the way they do, but, but and with great eloquence. And then all of a sudden everything changes, right? And Dural does this in, in Way of the Argosi at one point where there's an obvious fight scene brewing. And he instead tells this impassioned kind of story um, not a random story about some hero, not a story about how four thugs once got their asses kicked, but a story about who these guys might be. Um, and, and so that's what I kind of love. Uh, and, in, and then in pure philosophical terms, um, you know, so I'm, uh, so, so the, the Argosi sort of start from kind of base of humanism, humanism be, being built on really two precepts, which is all human beings have dignity and all human beings have agency. And I love that in a fantasy setting because I think today we hate the notion that all human beings have dignity. I think we are very comfortable with the notion that there are good people and there are bad people. And that when we attribute dignity to bad people, it feels like we are giving them power that they should not have. We are giving them position that they do not deserve. But humanism calls for that and as is pacifism. Um, and then, and then on top of that, the Argo, there's a certain amount of, of classical Greek and Roman stoicism about the Argosi, right? I'm, I am only going to, um, I am only going to place emotional value on those things that I can affect, um, which is also kind of like, we all experience that now, because that's like the basis of all therapy, right? Which is like, stop worrying about the things you don't control, worry about the things that you can control. Um, and, and then, and then that most integral one for me, which is like, how do you turn all human things into a superpower? Like how do you turn music into something incredible? I don't know what it's like for you, but like if I'm going on a run, for example, I'm a terrible runner <laughs> and I can feel like I have no energy and then I'll listen to music and all of a sudden I have energy. Um, and I think just how amazing is that? You know, how amazing is our, our martial arts? Um, you know, the hu humans are like the worst adapted fighters of all of the animal kingdom our teeth suck or we don't have proper claws we're clumsy and then you see like martial artists and you're like look at the amazing things that they do with their body look at what dancers do and so all of those things I wanted to put into the Argosi and that's kind of how I built them out 
Um, oh, so many things to say. Number one, I'm a martial artist, so like I'm just loving you right now. Uh, <laughs> number two, um, that scene is one of my favorite scenes because I loved what he did and I loved how how he outsmarted them. Um, and I love that that was how he won um, for so many reasons. So yeah, um, I just oh, I love that answer. I love I love this whole conversation. Right, um, I've got some practical questions from yes. my patrons. So um, Lynn Reed Aubrey said what tools do you like to use when you are writing and creating? So my tools change all the time because I'm, I'm the world's clumsiest writer in the sense that I don't have, I've, I've had 12 books published. I've probably written another 11 uh, other books. So, so maybe 23 books. That seems like that's not a lot by a lot of people's standards these days, but it's a lot for me. And I still have no idea what I'm doing. So I fumble around with all kinds of tools. Every book ends up being a challenge. The tools that I write with as of today, as we're talking you know, here on October 28th, 2021, um, I, I write in Ulysses, which is a, a Mac app that has very few of the features that one would think one wants in writing, except that it's pretty simple, which turns out to be almost the only feature that matters. I, the only two things I really need is something that um, that's something that syncs automatically across all my devices, and and that's pretty simple to use. Um, and so I use Ulysses for that. I used to use Scrivener. Scrivener's fantastic, but the sync for Scrivener between an uh, between an iPad and and the Mac requires that you store all your Scrivener files in one folder, and uh, that was just like I'm out. I need, I need simpler than that. Um, I've been using Plotter, P-O-L-T-T-R recently um, as they've been developing it because I'm a very diagrammatic person and it allows you to kind of lay out your scenes and move things around. And I have this problem where I frequently, to, to understand what's going on with a book or an act, a, a part of a book, I need to be able to see all of it in one space and just to see those little boxes and color them and to represent things. So um, those are the two main ones, but but just for context, like I own two different like um, free write traveler devices, which are like the distraction free things. I did not just buy one of those in the airport today. I was like sat waiting uh, for the airplane. And uh, so, oh yeah, I just got off a plane today as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a bit delirious um but uh yeah and I was like you know I just don't know like is this gonna be a gadget or is this really gonna help me like smash out more words so please tell me like am I am I going to get more words or you know what some sometimes it's fantastic uh and then other times I'm like no I don't need that what I need is my big screen and my you know and my backspace key um my working my my working arrow keys and stuff because for those for those who aren't used to these things the the free write traveler is a couple of different devices that were made that are basically like it's like paying a lot of money to get a computer from 1982 <laughs> exactly what it is like and i was like and so i don't i don't know like how um uh, how long you followed it but I sort of followed them when they were on Indiegogo and all of this stuff and I was like oh this is either like genius level Einsteinery the best thing since you know sliced bread to use a cliche or the biggest waste of 400 pounds I've ever spent and uh, so I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited and uh, this month uh, I get a load of like launch income from my last book launch and I was like you know I really feel like I deserve a treat so uh, yeah I, I, I sat on there and I like I, I said to my wife can I can I buy one and she was like oh, this is just another gadget but you spend your money on whatever you want I was like okay 
<laughs> so then off yeah. I went like buying it so it arrives on Saturday and I'm very excited for my um very expensive typewriter <laughs> it you know what it's it I, I've written a few books uh, on them um the way that it works best I think is is if you is if you intentionally write a book sort of into the dark as Dean Wesley Smith likes to say mm-hmm. you know without an outline and just sit down and just type and type and type and type till you till you're done um I think that that works really well but yeah I own both the original free write and the free write traveler which is the smaller one yep. yeah which and they're both lovely there's another device for people who who don't sort of uh who, who maybe aren't feeling like they can spend the, the 400 quid on uh on one of those devices, which is, uh, you can usually find them used, which is called the Alpha Smart Neo. I have so one I of those. At, yeah, I looked yeah. at one of those, but it's like $50 or $100 or whatever to ship it from America because there's like very few in the UK. Um, and so it's really hard. I do know a couple of people in the UK who've got one and they swear by them that they are mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, so yeah, I love that you're bringing this up. Well, well next time I, I'll probably be in the UK in March. Uh, so I'll see if I can find one for like 25 bucks or something. I'll bring it and I'll find a way to get it to you. Um, Amazing. They're, they're, they're lovely devices too. I actually love that keyboard. Um, they're very old. They were designed and I love what they were about. They were designed for, for kids to learn on who lived in places places where you couldn't, you, you know, you couldn't rely on power or Wi-Fi or all kinds of things to be necessarily reliable, reliable. They're super rugged. These things you put, I think you put two or three like AAA batteries or AA batteries in them and they last seven months. Yeah. <laughs> the fucking iPhone doesn't even last a day. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? All of this tech and it's fucking useless convention <laughs> things that are like 15 years old. Amazing. Amazing. I love it. I love it. Oh, <laughs> I'm just laughing at our whole society. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, another patron, Judith Mortimer, said, um, I know you get a lot of inspiration from music. So what are your latest uh, favorite tracks to write to? Oh, that's a real great question. Um, and I have to look it up to answer it because I, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, Sam. There's, so uh, I, I first came across this particular song um, from... Uh, what was it from the TV show, Alex Ryder, which is, there's a TV show of Alex Ryder, which is a set of books by Anthony Horowitz, mm-hmm. uh, which I'd only refer, read the first one. There was a very ill-fated movie that they tried to make. It's basically young James Bond kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, uh, and the title song, it's funny. Cause like, I didn't like the idea of an Alex Ryder TV show because it always looks like a posh English teenager you know, who turns out to be good at everything. And I'm like, you know, who wants that? Right. And he, and he has the most punchable face. The, the <laughs> actor's really good, but he's got a supremely punchable face. And you'll think that that's a terrible thing to say. And then you look at that photo uh, for, for the TV show and you'll be like, yes, that's absolutely <laughs> correct. Um, I don't blame him. We shouldn't blame him. It's a kind of disability to have a punchable face like that. But, um, but he's a really good actor. And actually the TV show is surprisingly compelling. Um, but Sam Henshaw, is a young, uh, I think, British uh, artist um, wrote a song called "The World Is Mine," that just kind of, it just completely kind of kicks my imagination into gear. Um, so I love that one. Um, I'm afraid of Americans by David Bowie. I've been listening to lately, and it just kind of really kind of grabs sort of my sense of danger and distrust. Um, there's a version of 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 uh, "Let My Love Open the Door." 
which is a Pete Townsend 1980s song, but this is a, this is a version by a band called Luminate that really kind of grabs me as well. So music for me is like an interesting way to process emotion into thought because it kind of will whip up a lot of different emotions in me. And because there's lyrics, just one lyric will make me think of things a lot mm-hmm. of the time. And so, yeah. So um, yeah, Sam Henshaw is pretty amazingly talented. The, the lyrics on that, it's sort of almost, but not quite kind of rap. Um, but his lyrics are just so good. I just, if I could write like that, I would be, you know, I would be happy with my life. I often look at uh, lyrics and poetry for that exact reason, because they have this way of, I, I, I don't know, capturing a thousand meanings in one sentence, like one lyric, one half line. Um, and uh, yeah, the, what, what's the, what's the, uh, my, um, is going to kill me because I can't remember the name of it but um is it expressionism poetry the the sort of very short quippy Atticus poet poetry in um Amanda Lovelace and not is it Nikita Gill and what's the other one who did the sun and her flowers or whatever it's called honey and milk Rupi Kaur you know oh yeah Yeah, yeah. sort of short one sentence like poetry they do the same thing that that um songwriters do and I love it um God bless you for having for having raised the name of like the only poetry book I've looked at in (laughs) the last 20 years (laughs) my my wife bought the book and she and and she was sitting there reading poems from it to me and and becoming quite emotional from them and and then she said and this one you know really and then she read it and it was and she was almost tearing up and I said sweetheart you read that poem to me three times in the last hour <laughs> yeah yeah Atticus if she likes um Rupi Kaur tell her yeah. to look up Atticus um and he's on Instagram I think just as Atticus but possibly on like uh, bookstores as Atticus poetry or something okay. but he he writes poems about love and they are in that same arena style wise um and I love him I've brought all of his books and and they all say the same thing and they're all <laughs> equally emotional and I love them all and I'm not going to apologize for it um uh okay I can't believe this but we've been speaking for almost an hour I'm devastated because there's so many things that I could uh, pick your brains about um but what can we expect from you next uh so I have uh so follow the Argosi which is the follow up to way of the Argosi just came out and um I absolutely adore that book authors probably shouldn't say that about their work but um of course but you I actually I, I have the benefit that I that that one of the, my favorite things to do is listen to the audiobook version of one of my books after it's come out. And I've been so lucky with narrators. And Kristen Atherton is so superb. Even if you've read Way of the Argosy and enjoyed it, I recommend people listen to Kristen Atherton's narration of it because it's like listening to an, a whole other story because she's an actress and, uh, and she's fantastic and she brings new layers to every line. And so for me, it's like fantastic because I'm like, oh my God, she found something in the line that I hadn't really thought about. Um, so uh, so that's wonderful. And then uh, next year, Our Lady of Blades is coming out, which is uh, the first in the new Great Coats, uh, swashbuckling, dueling, courts, corruption and intrigue. Um, possibly the most intriguing thing will be if it comes out because I'm struggling with the final draft of that book like you couldn't believe. Um, and then uh, Play of Shadows will come out the year after. And then I also have another book that's coming out uh, that same year as well, which, um, which is uh, the title, which is still secret. 
And the lady, sorry, is it Lady of Blades? Our Lady of Blades. Our Lady of Blades. And is that, um, do, do, do they have to have read everything up to that? Or is it sort of a sequel series? It's a sequel. It's it's a separate. It's a separate series. You can have not read any of the Great Coats and still uh, jump right in. And not only that, the the Court of Shadows, which is that that's what the series is. That whole series is designed where you can actually read any of the books in sort of any order, uh, and and it all still works. So it's a bit of a puzzle piece for me as a as a writer. Um, oh, but yeah, I just love. I, I it, the book came into being because I I kept seeing you know references to churches like Our Lady of Perpetual Sorrow and the, and it's just like. I just love that kind of language. So I came up with this notion that in this, in this court dueling culture, you know, the, so in, in Tristia, the world of the great coats, they, the, the trial by combat is very elaborate. Um, you know, and there's all these different kinds of sentencing duels where each cut on the opponent either drops a year or adds a year to a criminal sentence or things like that. And I just love this idea that duelists would take these titles like our Lord of, of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Dark Sword or, you know, Our Lady of Blades or, you know, and that Our Lady of Blades is the greatest title. So that's that's where that sort of came from. Well, that sounds amazing. So I am definitely going to hit pre-order. Is the pre-order live or? Not yet, because okay. I suspect my publishers are going, uh, we really don't want that idiot to uh, make <laughs> us uh, lie about when the book's going to be released. Okay, okay. Um, all right. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So can you tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel? You know what? This is one of those rare times where I actually have a story that is entirely suited to the question. Yes! <laughs> um, so in, in February of last year, um, and I'm glad we're allowed to swear on this podcast because I apologize, but there's a certain amount of swearing that's required. In February oh, of last year, <laughs> I was like, I need to write a book this month. And, and probably a lot of writers you know, come into this, especially once you've, you've written a few books and, and you have all these expectations about you know, the next book in the series or your style as a writer or the kinds of things you do and don't write about. And that's all on top of, and here's what people think are cool. And here's what people think is not cool. And here's what's problematic and not problematic and all this kind of stuff. And, and for me, I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, I sometimes hit this point where I'm looking at starting a new book where I'm like, oh my God, like, what am I allowed to write? Like what's appropriate to write, but, but more, but, but not just, I don't mean in political terms. I mean, like, you know, what will fans of fantasy agree is hip this year. And so um, I was spurred into a moment of rebellion against that. And I said, and I decided like, that's it. I'm writing, I'm not writing a palate cleanser novel as people sometimes go, I'm writing a fuck you novel. <laughs> I'm writing a novel. I'm just going to write a book. I'm writing it in a month and I'm going to write whatever the hell I want. And I don't give a crap about people's notions of what world building should be or what's not cool in fantasy or any of that shit because I'm inundated with it constantly. Um, and so I, I went and I wrote this book and, and I used to love kind of like Rogers, Elasny type sort of 1970s, late seventies, early eighties kind of um, uh, fantasy novels. They tended to be short. They did, you didn't give a crap about explaining how magic worked. Like there's none of this sort of, uh, I've, Brandon Sanderson's like a wonderful person. I've, I've met him before his rules of magic, all that stuff's great. I was like, fuck you and your rules of magic, Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> I'm going to have any kind of, I'm going to put in rat magic and, and, and it's going to turn out that the rat mage is like super good looking and dashing kind of figure. And I'm going to write spoon magic if I want it. And just, and so I wrote this book and, and it was just purely to, to allow me to tell a complete story that nobody else had to like, 
it, it was just an as you as we might call it an act of rebellion against not just the expectations of the world of fiction but the but uh, rebellion against myself and the cage that I was putting myself into and 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 so it felt so great to just get to the end of a story that's like this story exists only because I am writing something and I don't care what anyone else thinks. And the best part of the story is that last week I signed a publishing contract for it. Oh, that's so the, amazing. Oh, now I definitely can't wait to read that one as well, because that sounds amazing. And so the fun, and, and the lesson that I got from it, and this is the thing that I think is super helpful for people to remember is if you keep trying to fit inside the box what you're doing is you're walking into the most crowded space imaginable. Nobody needs you to, to fit inside the box. What they're looking for is not the most tepid, restrained, safe version of what you wish you could write. Um, you know, because there's just a lot of people who can probably do that better than, than we can. I mean, look at this, you know, like there's just a lot of authors who can, they can do it. They can do a, uh, they can do those things. 14 times a month and no problem. And they're just great at it. Um, and so I always tell people, you like, if you secretly love Twilight, like if you just love those shiny, sexy vampires and, but you, but you constantly hear people telling you how Twilight's awful and how it's bad, bad storytelling and how it's, Oh, it's just like gross and this and that. And you start like adopting that. And then you try to write your vampire book where you're trying explicitly not to write what you actually love. You're just going to screw it up. What you got to do is write, the freaking shiniest vampires with the, the most sexy, the most handsome, like just go as far as you want with what you love, because it's only through that sort of small act of rebellion, if you will, that you're likely to find a voice that is, that does feel like, yes, that is your voice. And it, you don't, you know, the Beatles didn't need all the record companies to love their music thank heavens, because every single record company rejected them until they got to Decca Records. Um, and that's the same thing for all of us as, as publishers, whether, whether as, as writers, whether you're going traditional or, or self-publishing and looking for readers, it's just finding that voice. So, so that, so that, that um, FU novel uh, was kind of a, a, such a potent reminder for me. That is fantastic. I absolutely love that rebellion. And I love that it's kind of the lesson that I learned this summer. And I'm veering in a different direction now uh, with my own fiction for very similar reasons. Um, and yeah, I just, oh, I have loved every single minute of this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and anything else that you would like to add? Sure. I, I, I can be found at decastel.com. It's D-E-C-A-S-T-E-L-L.com. That's by far the best place to get me. If you want to write me a letter and tell me what an idiot I am, uh, decastel.com slash contact. I, I promise I, I reply to everything. Um, and yeah, and, and you and there's if you're a fan of the books, there are short stories available on, on the site uh, built on, on characters and, and situations from the books. And, um, and that's the best way to find me. And, and thank you, by the way, because it's been an absolute joy uh, getting to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much. And I will, of course, put um, a link to that in the show, note and the show notes and, of course, a link to the books as well. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. And, of course, thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Sebastian de Castell, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. 
Next week, we have a returning rebel, Tiffany Yates Martin. Now, we have kind of a wide-ranging conversation. I know you can tell that we're friends because it <laughs> we, we sort of span across lots of different topics rather than <laughs> sticking to one specific thing that we were supposed to be talking to. But essentially, our discussion is all about, you know, creating and sustaining a long-term career, um, having a career across different types of publishing. Tiffany is published both um, self-published, she has a small press publisher and a large uh uh, publisher, I believe it's Penguin that she's with as well. So she, and she's also been in the industry for 30 years, uh, including as an editor and an or a published author. So she has a vast array of experience and we align on a lot of different topics. And it was just really fascinating to speak to somebody and to see what it takes to um, have a long-term career. And yeah, so join me next week as we have a wide-ranging discussion um, where we try to focus on writing as an editor and what that means, how to do it, um, and, and all of that good stuff. So yes, join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.